following podcast will contain spoilers and explicit language. Good afternoon and welcome to Sunday Afternoon Cinema. My name is Chris and he is called Mike. Hello, Mike. Hello, Chris. And today we are going to be wonder- we are going to be covering the wonderful Pulp Fiction, which I think is one of the definitions of classic film. It yeah, really is. This this is a film that when I when I first watched it, um, the first thing I said was, "What the hell have I just watched?" Yeah. The second thing I said was, "I want to watch that again." Mm. I think a lot of people probably did. Yeah, and it is one of those films that I can't remember who said it, but I definitely remember this when someone said every story is a beginning in the middle and end, but not necessarily in that order. Yeah, and this film proves that you can do that very well. Uh, yeah, this, but this ramps it up something rotten. No, um, th- this this is that taken to the nth degree to an entirely different level. Yeah, um, I mean we had it sort of in most of our dogs where the timeline to split and they use flashbacks, but really it's more flashbacks, isn't it? That, it's it's, just, it's not frame, necessarily moving that's, it around. That's flashbacks is a framing device. It's not flashbacks within flashbacks of yeah. You know it's because this is a film that starts at the end. Um, yes, technically. Technically, it starts at the end. Oh, sorry, no, technically, it starts in the middle. It does, really, yes. And finishes in the middle. And then, at the end, goes to the beginning. Um, no, the end is... Towards towards the end. Towards the end, I should say. But that will make more sense. Um, But the thing is, I didn't find it... The, the layout of it I didn't think it, I didn't find it jarring no strange. it wasn't it wasn't and this 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 is uh, for me it's a testament to the to the genius of Tarantino absolutely and he's able to keep these storyline strings together mm-hmm. and it's never confusing you never go wait why yeah yeah any other in the hands of any other director, any less experienced or confident director, this film would have been a ragged mess. I mean, the the, the classic the, the the reason why really is um, the whole tranche of Walter being shot halfway through the film, because the makers of the film in the back have said, "You've just killed off our main bloke halfway through the film." To which Tarantino turned around and basically said, "Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine." Yeah, and he was absolutely right. It was fine. It it was, and I've. At the end of it, you didn't think, oh, you killed off the main character. And you didn't think, well, why? No, it's, it's fine. It's and, not necessarily really a problem. The thing is, though, can you really say, ta- can you really say John Travolta's the main guy in, yes. in a film like this? I think he was. I mean, I don't remember much was, of what Samuel L. Jackson was doing. Maybe he was the was main doing. character. I, I don't remember much of what Samuel L. Jackson was doing at the time. But for me, Travolta is the biggest name in this film. Bar none. He's, he's, no, Bruce Willis... Was the biggest name? Really? What did you say? that, bear in mind at that time, John Travolta's career had really gone down down the toilet. Mm. This reinvented John Travolta's career. This this reinvigorated it. Up until that point, he was doing what he was talking three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but to say that, the only things I really know of Bruce Willis are the Sixth Sense and um, the Die Hard films. He's... I couldn't name you anything else that he's done. Okay. Can um, you? Yeah, Moonlighting, Hudson Hawk, um, Mercury Rising. Okay, so clearly he's done a lot more than I've seen. But I don't know, Bruce Willis still isn't. I mean, and of 
And of course, the wonderful, amazing Looper. What a bag of shit let's, that was. Let's not get on to that. <laughs> okay, so within the, within the film, we've got four separate storylines. Um, we've got, which, again, rather like we said in the past, I don't think we can cover the storylines that much because they're so complicated, they're so mixed up. And it's best There's just so to many watch tangents it. as well. There are, and they flash back to each other so much. Yeah. But And yet, as we say, it works. So, storyline number one. Uh, we've got Honey Bunny and Pumpkin, who are lovers and are bank robbers. Uh, at the start of the film, we just we see them discussing how the fact they're not going to do bank robberies anymore. But what about if we um, if we rob restaurants? What if we rob restaurants? You know, because it's easier, and you're not going to get that much. You're not going to get that much you're response. Gonna, which in this case turns out to be the wrong assumption. Yes. Well, you know. But we will get onto that sort later. Of, but not really. Um, and basically saying, look, you know, these people aren't going to want to defend themselves. Let's just take their moments and run. Yeah. And no one's pro- and probably no one's going to say anything about it. Although to be fair, if they did a- actually do that in real life, you've got twenty plus witnesses. How do they think they're going to get away with that? Exactly. You know, if you've got 20 people that can all identify these two people, in reality, it's a bit of a dumb move. Yeah. To be fair. Yeah, a bit of, a bit of boneheaded, boneheadedness on their yeah. part. Um, so we've got storyline number two that's uh, Vince and Jules, Vince Vega and Jules Wingfield, uh, two assassins who work for Marcellus Wallace, sent to recover a briefcase. They don't know what the content is. Are they really is. assassins, though? Would you class them as assassins well, or hitmen? Uh, I suppose muscle high muscle um Vince and Vega by the way must be mentioned the brother the brother of Vic Vega Mr. Blonde yeah from Reservoir Dogs um I'd still love to see Tarantino if he could do a Vega Brothers movie I would be interested but of course we see um Mr. White's coming to it as a wolf so but it's all good, you know, it's not a problem. Um, so, yeah, uh, they're basically, um, yeah, the two would be assassins who are working for Marcellus Wallace. Go and collect a briefcase that we don't find out the actual content of um, from a deal that's basically screwed over. And in the process, they have to, someone unfortunately gets shot in the head and they have to do all the consequences and deliver the briefcase, which, by the way, they don't take. No. It's weird. You don't see them walking out of the briefcase. No, Jules has the briefcase at the end. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have anything in his hands. And neither does Vince. No, he does. I'll have to rewatch it, but I'm sure they don't have the briefcase. No, but I, anyway. I watched it last night. Where he walks out, he's got the briefcase on his right hand. Because he tucks the, the gun into his waistband and covers it up with his t-shirt and walks out with it and it's still in his right hand. Because Vince is carrying a book. I'll rewatch it. I'll rewatch it. Um, okay, so storyline right. uh, story three. Um, Vincent Vega and Mia Wallace, Marcel's his wife. Uh, we meet. They meet at Mia's home. They go for a date where there was da- where there was dinner and dancing. Uh, in a wonderful scene, it's got to be said. Going back to Mia, they she snorts a very lethal dose of heroin. Although I'm fairly certain, if you snort heroin. It would kill you no matter what. I don't think that's a feel. I don't think that's a drug you should be showing up your nose. It's not coming. No, it's heroin. It's, not, no. it's meant to be an intravenous drug at the end of the day. Um, not a drug I would ever want to use. Same. I this, have to this say, put me off it. It's got to be said. I mean, if this doesn't put, if this or or train spotting 
makes you think that drugs are a bit of fun, then I think you've missed the point of the film. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't be wrong. In the in the right circumstances, drugs can be very fun, but only if done correctly and responsibly. Yeah. Um, um, so as a result, she unfortunately has a overdose, overdose. and has to take. Vincent takes her back to Lance's drug dealing friend, feeling that she's going to die, and basically save her in a very dramatic scene. And, it's, and I love Lance as a character. It's good old Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz is brilliant in this, and Lance is a very likable character. Yeah. It has to be said. If you were going to have a drug dealer, you'd want it to be Lance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, not not to go not to go too deeply too deeply into trivia and quotes because again, I don't want that podcast to be that. But apparently, um, Courtney Love and let's face everything that Courtney Love says is correct. Um, Kurt Cobain was going to be the Lance character. Now I can see why because they were very similar, very similar yeah, stature. But to be fair, Courtney Love has made talking shit into a career. Yeah, I mean, I can I can maybe understand. If Eric Stoltz based his character look off Kirk Cobain, because certainly they are very similar. Yeah. You know, facial hair, hair, you know, hair length. But I don't think... I mean, would, would Tarantino really have cast? Well, from all accounts, he never even he never even said it and never thought about it, never even spoke to Kirk Cobain. And I'm not sure that Kirk Cobain would necessarily want to be involved in it anyway. Exactly, because he wasn't an actor. No. And he... he Certainly, was making no moves towards the Hollywood, the greater Hollywood Hills. Um, no. So I, I mean, I think she's probably she's probably making shit up as she goes along. Yeah, and I mean, as I say, she's very famous for doing that. She's very good at doing that. It's got to be said. Um, and the final main storyline really um, is of Butch, um, played by Mr. Willis, um, who meets Marcellus Wallace. Who explains that he's n- he's not a boxer really in his prime anymore, and basically he stages a fight, and says, you know, go down in the fifth round, and you'll get an awful lot of money. And the fifth, your ass goes down. Butch takes business into Butch goes into business for himself, ends up killing the boxer, and so Marcellus Wallace then wants to try and find him, but would ultimately end up with a freak encounter when Butch runs over Marcellus Wallace and is taken into the back of a. Um, uh, like pawn shop. A pawn shop, and ends up saving his life in uh, what was one of the most horrendous scenes in a film I think we'd seen at that stage. Yeah, yeah, and that that was a, a jarring scene. And we said before that where it jumps between scenes is not very very jarring, but that actual scene in the pawn shop is jarring because yeah. it's so it's violent. If that's, it that's is. the word for it. If, yeah. I mean, in a film that has already been filled with violence up until this point, this scene is shockingly violent. And it, and it proves that Butch is a good guy, ultimately, because he goes back to save Arcelor Wallace's lo- yeah. life, ultimately. Um, and several other body parts. You know, he he, um, he, get, he's, he gains his rep- retribution, as it were. By saving Marcellus Wallace. Apart from anything else, it probably is his redemption. Yeah, and Marcellus Wallace basically says, "Look, we're square. What happened? We're done. You yeah, know, we're, we're finished. You get out of town. You know, live your life, keep yourself to yourself, and we're all good. Yeah, straight away. I mean, in a way, that I think that's Marcellus Wallace's saying. You know." Thanks. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's the closest scenario. That's as close as he could ever come to saying thanks. Yeah. He could never acknowledge what happened in that, in that back room. Yeah. So that is the basic plot points of the film, but as we say, it doesn't work in that order. And the way that Tarantino so massively puts the film together in, you know, and intermingles with each other perfectly, as I say, it doesn't feel odd and it doesn't feel out of place. I never felt that it was difficult watching or that it didn't make an awful lot of sense. Um, you know, you see you see people in different clothing and yet you don't question that. Yeah. There, there doesn't seem to be... Um, um, yeah. continuity errors you, you don't know, see that as a continuity issue um, or you just, a natural... t- you just take it as part of part of the natural order of yeah. the film and as I say in anyone else's hands this film would have been a jar and mess absolutely um, if if anyone less confident or less able would try Oliver Stone directing this movie mm-hmm. wouldn't have worked um, I don't know I think he's a perfectly good competent he's director a, he's a good competent director but I don't think he'd have made this work. I think Aaron Sorkin could have. Aaron Sorkin's more of a screenwriter, though. Yeah, true, but, you know, I think he could have done it well. Cronenberg, possibly. Cronenberg, maybe Gus Van Sant. Maybe Gus possibly. Van Sant. But we're talking about a small handful. Oh, God, yeah, a very small handful. A very small handful of artists who would have the confidence to pull this off. Yeah. And considering this is Tarantino. Ridley Scott? No. No, no. Considering this, considering this Tarantino's second movie, yes, the second movie he's ever directed to pull this off and to do it so well. Mm. Can you name any other director who could who could do that? Well, not necessarily any other director. However, I have just seen um, at the cinema recently um, a film called Wind River, and it was the only it was only the director's third film that he both wrote and directed. He's done nothing before it, but if you watch Wind River, it's like, Christ, if this guy doesn't become big, then there's something wrong. I would really recommend seeing it. And honestly, it's one of the few films I could say, actually, that is Tarantino-esque, and honestly, please watch it, because it's just stunning. Um, I mean, going, you know, talking about this, this, this interchange and this intermingling, it's something that I've often said about narratives in TV shows and also certain films that if you are in those storylines and in that TV programme and films, mm. it must be incredibly boring. Because you see people having starting conversations. You, yeah. It's like you and me talking, then switch to another room, they're having a conversation, come back, and suddenly we start having the same conversation again. And we've sat there for five minutes without actually talking. Yeah. I know that's not how it actually happens. I know that. But that is in reality how it works. That's, that's, that's how that's how you know essentially that's how the setup is in, in TV. Everybody shows. is waiting for everybody else to finish their sentences because the camera happens to be on them and when the camera happens to come back round. But then again, it's how TV shows and how certain films work and we don't question <laughs> it. We simply fill in the blanks because that's the way that the mind works. We don't think it's in, incorrect. That's how it's meant to happen. Yeah, you, we, we mentally fill in the blanks. Yeah, you automatically say to yourself, oh, this has happened in the meantime. It must have. Because that's what would happen in real life. Yeah, I mean, otherwise you'd have, you'd have a string of continuity errors that no one would understand. Um, you know, it simply wouldn't move along like that. Um, you know, in, in the times of wanting, of doing my own writing and wanting to make something of myself, 
I've always tried to make my stories and my scripts as succinct as possible because that to me is realistic. Yeah. Um, but that's just me, you know. Otherwise, but to me, if you don't have that, if you don't have that in terms of story, if you don't have that in terms of dialogue, then what's the point? You're doing a bad job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've read some terrible, terrible dross mm. in my time. I've read some absolutely brilliant works. Um, I think it's it's down to down to the author, down to the writer themselves yeah. on what what they make of it. Um, to draw comparisons, Dan Brown. I've never se- I've uh, never read a single Dan Brown book in my life. I've never. Don't, I don't think I've even don't seen. You don't really need to, because in fairness, they're fairly terrible, and everything everything has been disproven years and years before. He made those. Um, the Vinci Code. The Vinci Code. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, very derivative. <laughs> And again, also already years ago disproven. But then you compare that on the other side, and my favourite author, Stephen King. If you roll your eyes, I've got his latest in my bag. Um, and depending on the work, it do, it does depend on the work. The man cannot write a sentence. Do you want to hear an excerpt of any Stephen King novel? The man goes into the war, into the room, and then he looks around him, and then he takes the knife out, and then he kills the woman, and then he goes home and has a fried sandwich. For fuck's sake, complete a sentence! There are commas and full stops for a reason! Fuck! You and the thing is, you know I'm right! No. You know I'm right! Uh, no, I'm not. He should not I'm be allowed not, to get away with this. I'm not going to acknowledge that because you've basically just taken your summarisation of Stephen King from an episode of The Simpsons. That's not true. <laughs> I can't remember when it was, when it wasn't The Simpsons. So fuck it wasn't Cartier series, no. I don't, I don't remember where it was from. South Park? No. Shut up! <laughs> right, okay. So, before that, you know, about the narrative, that's my point. The film kills. <coughs> I've seen so many straightforward films with ABC narratives that feel disjointed and don't feel that they actually move on to reasonable pace. I have pace. massive plot points. Yes. Massive plot holes, Indeed. I say. Um, and, you know, in a, in a 90-minute movie, you shouldn't really have too many plot holes. No. Or certainly no. not major ones. I've seen movies with plot holes you could drive a tank through. Yeah, they do stumble along. And, you know, you, you have to wonder how it was ever made to begin with. This proves it can be done, and it can be done well. It can be done exceptionally well. I mean, how this movie didn't get more of all the awards. Yes, yeah. You know, I mean, don't be wrong, it won at, at Cannes Film Festival, won the Palm d'Or, all the rest of it. Any Oscars? I don't believe so. But then again, I... Don't feel that this was necessarily a film. It wasn't Oscar bait. It wasn't. I always get the feeling that if Tarantino was invited to an award ceremony, he wouldn't necessarily show up. I mean, he might show up, but maybe, I mean, just to be to, to take the piss off the people. Possibly, yeah. Um, okay, so it works in its favor for two reasons. Okay, first, the script. Um, like we saw with, dog, with Dogs. Tarantino for me is just a master of dialogue. 
he seems to have a way of creating natural speech tones that don't feel forced and make you feel that the two people were talking and that you're watching aren't just acting the parts but are very much it's into the conversation. Scenario. It's, yeah. it's, like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like if he phoned us... It, that that would be kind of the type of performances that yeah. gets on screen. If not, like it's two people sitting across from each other and reacting and mm. acting. It's like he's just filmed two people in real life acting out their everyday life. Yeah. That just so happens to be the coolest thing you've ever seen. Absolutely. I mean, um, I don't know how much of this and indeed Reservoir Dogs was ad-libbed i don't think an awful lot of it would be because quentin tarano is, is such a control freak in the best way possible i don't think he would have allowed them to get away with ad-libbing I've, because he wants it so tight he knows he knows the film he wants to make ultimately yeah um you're right i think i think there's certain people that he might allow to ad-lib occasionally yeah um if he trusts them probably but I mean, we're talking Irma Thurman, his muse, <laughs> and Samuel L. Jackson would probably be the only two that could really get away with it. Yeah. Everyone else. I'm not convinced John Travolta could necessarily ad lib. As good as, as much I, as I I'm, like John Travolta, I'm, I'm not pretty sure if you held a gun to John Travolta's head and told him to ad lib, he'd fail. <laughs> um. He's just not that type of actor. And it's not no. against the guy. He's just not that type of actor. No, I mean, he's done some dross in his time. Battlefield Earth. Oh, God. How do they tie up their shoes in that film? It doesn't make any sense. I, although I did like him in um, da, 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 Broken Arrow. Yeah. I mean, it was a stupid film, but it was fun nonetheless. Yeah. It, I hated it was his face off. stupid film. Uh, yeah, you need to everything about face off, though. In fairness. <laughs> That's because it was crap. It was crap, but it was entertaining. Well, maybe. Um, Face but, off. But I do get the feeling that there's an awful lot of... To be fair, he wasn't nearly as bad as um, the other bloke. Nicholas Cage? That's it, thank you. Um, you know, I do get the feeling that they probably spent an awful lot of time rehearsing in this to get it just so. I mean, may, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they did just send um, the scripts to um, Travolta and Jackson and just said here's the basics now do what you feel I mean you know I love the conversations you know the the two the other comparison I would make um, in a Tarantino film um, is the conversations between between pink and white in the warehouse you know and they start playing, you know, they start as amicable and then they start arguing and then they start getting into gunfights. It's like, you know, when when Pink turns around um, to White and says, you know, you want to be professional about this? I'm the only fucking professional. You're the one that said all this information. I'm the one that's not said anything. The wh- I'm not quoting directly because I can't remember the quote, but the way that the, 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 way that the, the dialogue flows and the interplay, it's completely believable. Yeah, Um it- I, I I have to wonder if if Tarantino when he writes a script, does he does he say I want such and such a person to play this? Yes, very much so. He, I mean, he must do because oh I because it seems like it's every piece of dialogue is crafted for that individual, with them specifically. I think he probably does. Jackson in particular, um, 
you never hear the man say motherfucker in so many different ways. <laughs> um, and in the in the recent movie, the Hitman's Bodyguard, um, Ryan Reynolds even makes mention of he's ruined the same motherfucker. <laughs> um, which I thought was was just a great little throwaway line. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I love the interplay between um, Jackson and Bruce Willis in Die Hard: Vengeance. Yeah. Um, I get, you know, I think Samuel Jackson has been incredibly lucky since since his uh, career t- took off. In that, people seem to have written roles with him in mind. Yeah, I mean, you know, as 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 snakes on a plane. Yeah, I was about to say as bad and as stupid as that was, but then again, it was meant to be bad. It was meant to be stupid. Exactly, and Samuel Jackson said that he only took the move took the movie on the basis that they didn't change the name. Yeah. Um, when, when, when his agent turned it down, he fired his agent for turning it down on his behalf without showing them the script. Yeah. I was like, well, good I mean, do you think it's fair to say that Tarantino is possibly one of the best script writers in the, in the industry? I would say so, but saying that, I think in, in order to describe him as such, he'd probably have to do something a bit more out of his range yeah um, so I wouldn't say he's, he's the best I'd say he's one of the best um, but to have he needs to have a, a, a bit more of a dynamic range I mean I've seen Shane best... Black I'd yeah. say mm. is, is probably one of the top script writers and indeed uh, they mentioned Darren Sorkin yeah and Darren Sorkin but he but he needs to he needs to do more films because mm. you know he's been concentrating on TV so much and don't we know it does it well the, we, the West Wing yeah. and the newsroom the newsroom was one of the best series I've ever seen fantastic performances from what was his name Jeff Gold not Goldblum uh, the guy who was in Dumb and Dumber Jeff Bridges no, no. Um, um, I'm you know who I mean yeah the yeah. blonde guy because I've seen him in other stuff. Yeah. Um, Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels, well done. Well, I'm assuming you're right, because I can't actually remember. Yeah, because yeah. he was in Speed. Yes, he was. Yay! <laughs> oh um, yeah, absolutely fantastic performance from him. And there's a scene in that where he's, where he's, he's at a kind of like a student conference. Yeah. And he's asked, uh, the panel has asked, why do you think America is the greatest country in the world? And there's like a five minute di- scene of dialogue where everyone else has answered and it comes to Jeff Daniels' character and he, answers, he says, I don't think it's the best country in the world. I don't think it's the greatest country at all. You know, we're 37th in the reading table in the world. You know, 67th in maths. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And it just destroys this kid's question. And it's, it's one of the most genius scenes you've ever seen. And also, um, Jason Reitman, um, who did Thank You For Smoking, and I'm fairly certain that he did, um, yeah, he did do Up In The Air and Juno. And I absolutely love Up In The Air, but Juno, sorry, not Juno, but Thank You For Smoking is, is incredibly witty. 
Especially if we're filming that doesn't involve any actual smoking. Oh, well, it doesn't, no, but it's just, you know, and I would really recommend that people go out of their way to see that. It's, 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 it's a film that really took me by surprise, but I love I mean, it so it'd much. Be, I mean, going back to the directors for a minute, I can think of better directors out there, but I don't think they can necessarily do it. The aforementioned Gus Van Sant. I don't, I couldn't see him doing it. I couldn't see Darren Aronofsky doing this. Um, I couldn't see Lars von Trier doing this. But they are in their own right, fantastic also, directors. Also is, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when, for, for me anyway, if I read, um, you know, Mother, the recent Mother film that came out, done by Darren Aronofsky, as soon as I found out he was doing that, it was like, fuck yes, I have to see this. Same with Lars von Trier. I watched Antichrist on the basis of Lars von Trier doing that because I thought, I'm going to see something special here. There are certain directors who are that damn good. And to be fair, Tarantino is one of those directors. Tarantino is one of those very few directors that any time he releases a movie, I'll go out and watch it. it it's, it's like, it's, it's similar to the like, great, um, it was in Alan Rickman. You know, I think we said this in the in the yeah. in the in the um, Dobber episode. Consistently excellent, and and he's one of those actors where it's like if he's in it, there's got to be a reason to watch it. There's something there. Yeah, I mean, he did a film years ago with I think it was Josh Hartnett um, about about barbers in Yorkshire, right? Right, just the simplest little movie. Just a really low budget movie. Josh Hartnett doing a, a, like a Yorkshire accent. Which sounds really jarring. But, it was Alan Rickman. And so he's a wonderful performance. And indeed, Snowcake. Um, yeah. I would really recommend Snowcake to anybody. Um, okay, so I think we've I think we've gushed over the script uh, enough. Um, let's talk a little bit about the story, which we've already you know we've already said it's a bit jarring. It doesn't follow the narrative of the film. It goes from oh. one to the other with no warning. And I can understand for why for some, why it's difficult to make sense of it. But, as I say, it was never something that I really thought about or, or, got, or got confused. It's like, it's like subtitles. It was only once she started thinking about it afterwards that it got confusing. Mm. During the watching of the movie, if you just watch the movie, it doesn't get confusing until you start thinking about what happened Yeah. after the movie. And that's when you start going, well, wait, wait, wait. And that's when that's when you get confused when you start I mean, overthinking. I and I don't watch I do watch I don't watch the sound offensive here, but I have I've spoken to so many people who will not watch film with subtitles because they say it's hard. It's like if you Is try, it, if you allow your brain to just accept the fact that there are subtitles there, you get to the point where you don't even notice yeah, them anymore. I mean, you just accept. Them. I I can watch films with subtitles on; doesn't bother me. So, but my brother, his girlfriend. They can't. They can't. He, he said he, they can't concentrate on what on watching what's happening and reading the subtitles as well at the same time. Yeah. Um. I mean, I don't know if it's to do with spatial awareness or what what to do with, but I can concentrate fine on both. I I think you develop something in your brain where you don't you almost don't notice they're even there anymore. Yeah, it's like you say, a spatial awareness thing. It's just there, and your eyes don't get confused. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the you know, yeah. It might occasionally be times where you have to go wait. It needs to rewind. But 
Like that can happen in any movie. Indeed, indeed. Um, okay, so let's talk about the scenes, and then we'll talk about the scenes again. Okay, so we've got the prologue uh, that starts in the diner. Okay. I must point out on the diner scene, the scene you see at the beginning. Yeah. There is a continuity error. There is, yes. I picked up on that as well. Later on in the movie. Yeah. We'll go on to that, actually, because I've got a recording of that, which did bug me when I watched it, so we'll go back to that. Um, so we've got the prologue. Basically, it's got Honey Bunny and Pumpkin um, talking about the robberies and how they're going to carry it out, and so we get the famous line... Um, Everyone in the call is a robbery! Every fucking pricks move, and I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. And so, and it makes it very well into the Fun Loving Criminals song. No, it's not Fun Loving Criminals. It is Fun Loving Criminals. It's in oh, sorry. So yeah, I thought, thought you meant when you start the intro. No, 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 no. The that actual line is in it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got that basic prologue, which for me is one of the great openers to a film. Yeah. It it's really so is. low key. Yes, and the dialogue, again, going back to the dialogue into the script. The dialogue is quick, snappy. And it's funny. Yeah, and it's it's the diner scene from Reservoir Dogs. Yes. All over again. Yeah. But, you know, kind of a a redux version. Almost, yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's... um, for for again, without wishing to sound harsh or without wishing to criticise people, I think if you turned around to a lot of people and said, "By the way, the opening to this film, there's almost ten minutes of pure dialogue, watching two people sitting in a coffee shop table doing nothing other than talking," that's and saying, making eyes at each other. Well, what am I watching? Why why am I interested in this? Um, it's like yeah, but if you watch if it, you watch it, you'll realise you will it's be interested. Yeah. Yeah, because you've got to, you've got to give credit to as well the actors Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer. Oh God, yeah, Tim Roth scene. is just genius. Tim Roth is just one. He proved that amazing, in Reservoir Dogs. He's an amazing actor, and I've never seen him in a bad role. Mm. Um, I can't. I mean, everything he's done has been pure gold. Yeah, and uh, whether he's done TV, film, theatre. He's always had a standout performance. Agreed. Um, and credit to Tarantino for, if you will, discovering him. Even though he'd, he'd been an established actor for years before, like, really bringing him to the forefront in in dogs and in fiction. I mean, I it's it's hard to say if he was the best thing in most of our dogs because you can't say that he was the best thing. But no, because yeah, you can't say he's the worst every, thing either. But everybody every, was brilliant in that. Everybody was everybody was excellent, and that's again credit to Tarantino for for doing his casting so well. But I don't think you could have replaced Roth. I couldn't imagine anybody else playing that character. No, there are I even mean, though it's very small key, even though he doesn't say an awful lot. But he doesn't have to. No, he doesn't. To be fair, because because his his character is there, mm. and you see it in the in the bathroom scene, where where oh yes, in Reservoir Dogs, in yeah. Reservoir Dogs, and that's Sim Roth's entire character. There, you've got to you know I can't see anyone else delivering that scene so well. I agree. I agree. Um, I, I think the I mean, only I think the only person I could really think of that Gary might, Oldman maybe. Or, um, 
as we were saying before we started the podcast, um, Tom Hardy. Yeah. I think Tom Hardy could pull it off. Now he could. Yeah. But, you know, it was a movie after 20, 20 odd years, mm. so you've, yeah. you've, got to, you've got to go with the contemporaries who were around then. Yes. Maybe Gary Oldman could do it. Mm. But would you still be as invested in the character if it was um, Gary Oldman? Or well, well, it's difficult to say because we have taken that character so much into our hearts in the same way that there are far better actors, it's got to be said, than um, blah, 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 um, Martin McFly. Um, Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox. There are far better actors than Michael J. Fox. It's just as simple as that. But could you imagine anybody else playing Martin McFly, or indeed anybody, but... Um, uh, well, the set footage of, uh, of Eric Stoltz. Yeah, and he was taken off the set fairly quickly. Or, yeah. for that matter, uh, in the same vein, could Lloyd. you imagine Christo- anyone but Christopher Lloyd playing Doc? No, you couldn't. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think those those roles become ingrained in our psyche. Definitely. Um, and we won't love these people. We do. And it's because of the actors involved. It's not because of the characters themselves. The characters mm. themselves aren't really that likeable. Yeah. If you take them just on face value. Agreed. But it's because of the actors involved and the way they the way they characterise the performance. Yeah. That you do become involved and you do start you know, you become attached. So yeah, you're right, Christopher Lloyd, Michael, uh, Michael J. Fox, very great examples. So the next point we have is the prelude, um to Vincent Vega and Marcel as well his wife. This is where they go to the apartment to retrieve the briefcase that we do not know the contents of. Um, and they give some of the greatest dialogue, frankly, um, of, of any film out there, to be perfectly yeah. honest with you. Um, well, what's your favourite piece of dialogue? I know we don't do quick quotes, but what's your favourite line of dialogue? From that scene? Yeah. Um, it's when they saw off the, the foot massage. Right. And it's only Rocky Horror. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you don't throw gas. And saying, um, full love is a very sensual thing. <laughs> man, I, man, I gave a, a thousand foot rubs. I ain't, I ain't never been sick. That, that's not even the same lead. That's not the same. What is it? That's, that's, not, that's, not, that's, not, that's not the same lead. That's not the same ballpark. It's, it's not, not even the, the same, same fucking sport. Yes, that's it. Yes. But for me, my favourite line, just because it comes out of nowhere, is when Samuel L. Jackson shoots the guy who's sitting on the on the sofa and turns around and says, Oh, I'm sorry, Dad. Break your concentration? It's such a great line. Yeah. And the, A, the way it's delivered. B, the fact that it's such a simple line, and C, because you really do not see it coming out, it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And of course, we've got the whole what, you know, when Stone Cold Steve Austin comes in and everybody starts shouting, what? And it's just wonderful because Stone Cold Steve Austin does the stunner, you know, it's brilliant. I think you've gotten confused. Oh, yeah, that's a different kind of what, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But that Completely is what, different what. You know, it's like, you know, it, what what language are they speaking? What? Do they speak English? English, motherfucker, do you speak it? What? 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 You're going into Stone Cold Steve Austin territory again. Say <laughs> what again? I double dare you. I dare you. I double dare you. Say what again? Um, yeah. It, I, again, I couldn't imagine anybody else but Samuel L. Jackson living that line. No, you can't. Um, the, the, I mean, the line everyone knows. Um, 
Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous well, man is beset on all sides. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Because that is repeated so often. It's repeated, so, it all, it it's all, repeated twice in the film. No, but I mean in general. Oh, in general, yeah. yeah it almost becomes a bit... Um, I don't, no, not and stereotype. But yeah, just a bit like, really, you know, there's more lines to it than that. I th- no, it's it's not because of the line itself. It's be- for me, it's the delivery. It is, and and, um, and the look and the and the look on Samuel L. Jackson's face as he's facing the wall and turns around and says, "And thou shalt lay thy vengeance down on me." The look on his face is almost demonic. Of you do not fuck with me. You do not fuck with yeah, me. Yeah, and yeah, I'm the boss. Yeah, and and he's, there's a great line towards the end of the movie where he says. I thought it was just some cold hard shit to see the people before before I killed them. Now I started thinking about it hard. I'm the righteous man. And the way yeah. he delivers it is just wonderful delivery in yeah. both scenarios. And in completely different scenarios mm. and completely different deliveries. Because he both. says in that line, you know, Ringo, um, the um, pumpkin character, he basically saves his life because he's trying to turn his life around. He doesn't want in this business anymore. Yeah. Whether he would have been able to do that is questionable, but there we are. Um, so the next one we've got is Vincent Vega and Miles Solis, as well as his wife in general. That's... Miss me Wallace. Yeah, uh, that's when they go to the diner, that's when they dance. Jack and, Rabbit swims. And they have that wonderful dance to um, You Never Can Tell. Which there's, is still a wonderful piece. There is also a humorous aside in this scene. Which in bit? The, in the style of scene. The fact that Buddy Holly, the waiter. Steve Buscemi. Played by Steve Buscemi. Who yeah. in Reservoir Dogs yeah. was against tipping. Yes. And also what I loved, and what I and I probably did notice it previously, but I didn't pick up on it. I only really just noticed it now. Was when they were in the scene... And you could see other people in the background, um, either dancing or singing along or doing something. They weren't just standing there. Yeah, they weren't not just doing extras. anything. You know, I mean, they were because they obviously didn't say any lines and you haven't a clue who these people are. But I mean, they weren't just but, extras who were told just stand there, just stand and, there and do nothing and mill around a bit. Yeah, they, um, and that's what I think is wonderful. I said that about um, the recent La La Land. Um, you've not seen it, have you? Oh, God, no. You should, actually. It's a really good film. But anyway, the reason I bring that up is because at the very start of La La Land, there's this massive um, song and dance routine. Of course there is! Exactly. And on top of a series of cars. Now, there's a massive freeway that goes back however many miles. But for the whole thing, it's all got cars along it, and it's all got people. And every single Is this the freeway from the REM video? I don't know. But all the way to the back, you can see everybody else involved dancing even though they're you can't tell who they are they're clearly very small but someone said we need to have these people doing this otherwise it doesn't look real it's the same in jack robert slim um you need to have these people as actual audience members otherwise it doesn't look realistic and for that i give them an awful lot of credit um okay so the next one we have is the prelude to the gold watch 
and also the gold watch. And again, I'm sorry, but I do not find the whole Christopher Walken thing entertaining in the least. If anything, I find it boring. And I don't understand why it's held in such fairness, his character in this is quite fucking creepy. Well, he is. And I'll never give... I'll, I'll always give Christopher Walken credit. But I just don't think it's as big... <laughs> I just don't think it's, it's as big of a deal as people make it out to be. No, it's... Um, I is He's a very... He's a, he's a marmite actor... Yeah, no, it's not. It's nothing against Christopher Walken himself. I just don't think it's as exciting as people make it out to be. I just don't. I, I admit it's a pivotal scene, but is it? Could they? Could they have cut that and it make absolutely no difference to the film? No, at all. No, they couldn't. Because you know. then, without without that scene. Why would Butch Bonson have sent to his apartment for his... This is true, although to be honest with you, I, I do have a problem with that a little bit, because, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, he says, why didn't you pack the watch? The one thing I told him to in, do was pack the fucking fairness, watch. I always thought if it was that important Why didn't to you him, do it? Yeah. Exactly. You know, if I've got something that important to me that means that much, I'm going to make sure it's in the bag myself. Absolutely, yeah. Or was, I've got it on me. Yeah. You know, so... I mean, I, I, you know... We're going out for a drink later. If we go down to the pub and I forget my wallet, I'm not going to turn around to you and say, "How did you let me walk out without my wallet? You're an idiot! I've got to go home and get my wallet now." Yeah, you know. I mean, it's not even it's not even that. It's it's more ridiculous than that because it's like I trusted you to take care of the thing that was important to me. Yeah, I mean, if it's not important to you, do it yourself. Yeah, you know, because then at least. You've got nobody to blame. Yes. And that poor girl seems so terrified of him. Yeah. And she's wonderful, but she seems terrified. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the actress's name. Um, Same. Same. Uh, but we have to We have to as well. We have to mention, because in this scene, the taxi driver. Yes. Yeah. Which, Ooh, you know... This is a fascinating, and fascinating insight in, into both characters. And she's, you know, she's asking, "What's it like to kill a man?" Mm-hmm. You're the first person I've ever met who's killed a man, and he's saying, oh, "I didn't know he was dead." And so yeah, of course he didn't. Yeah, you know, and because he got the fuck out of Dodge out as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So he's like, "You know, I'm sorry he had to die, but at the end of the day, he had done the same thing to me." Yeah, yeah. Um, so the next um, point is the Bonnie situation. Um, this was when they Marvin unfortunately gets shot in the head, and they have to take him back to to the other house. Basically, clean up the car. The um, Marcellus Wallace is called. The wolf shows up, sorts out the situation, and it's a very wonderful scene. And I don't. It's a wonderful line from Tarantino, and I don't want to repeat it because I don't want to say that word because I don't. And I, dead, I really do dead not say Dead person storage. Yeah, because it's a horrible line and it's not nice. But at the same time, it's a wonderful line of dialogue. It's a, yeah. it's, a, it's a wonderful. It's a wonderful line. Did you see the sign that said "dead storage"? Do you know why there's no sign? Because that's not my business. Yeah. And you know, I I do wonder. You know. I don't want to get too much into it, but I'm sure that Tarantino was actually called for that, for using that word so often in his films, and I'm quite certain that he probably would have spoken to at least Samuel L. Jackson and said, look, 
there's going to be these lines. Are you okay with that? Samuel L. Jackson has been in every Tarantino film since fiction. Yeah. I'm sure if the guy had a problem with him... He probably would have said it. He'd have said an that after the first one. You're far too racist for me. Yeah. I'm not doing this anymore because I don't, I don't agree with this. <laughs> Samuel Jackson doesn't just use this language in, in Tarantino films, though. He uses them in every film. True, true. So... Um, I mean, um, you know, the... I mean, that's justified, but maybe it's a kind yes, of... Yes, yeah. Maybe from Samuel Jackson's point of view, it's... Well, if I say it, it's all right. <laughs> you know? And if he says it, I know he's in character. Yeah. It doesn't mean it. It's it's not... He's not saying it personally to me. It's his character saying it. Yeah. So, maybe... I mean, Samuel Jackson's a, prag- a pragmatist. I've met the man. He's a very nice, very nice chap. Um... And I think he's probably more realistic about it and realises this is just a work of fiction. Yeah, it is. A work of pulp fiction. And and as harsh as it is to say, there are probably people out there who do use it, you know, not just black people, but white people as well. No, who, there certainly are. You know, um, you, you can chuck it up to, oh, it's, 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 you know, it's it's um it's the generation yeah or or it's, it's the way you were brought up yeah or or it's like making a statement against it because if you if you use it it loses all power now I can understand what they're saying in the same way as the f word for people who are gay I still don't think that makes it right and I will no. never think it oh, makes no. it right um and the final scene is going back to the going back to the diner um so we'll just go back over those one more time because we need to for this for the second part we've got the prologue at the diner we've got the prelude to Vincent Vega and Marcellus Waller's wife we've got the actual date we've got the gold watch and the gold watch scenes we've got the body situation and we've got the epilogue in the diner so if we do this in actual order we have the prelude to the gold watch which is a flashback the Prelude to Vincent Vega and the the actual date itself. Then we've got the body situation where they go to clean up their so body. Would that be the apartment? The prelude. Uh, yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Then when he actually gives them the watch to begin with, then we've got. No, the... I meant I meant number two. Oh, um, no, yes, that would be when they're actually the apartment going, when they go yeah, into, when they're going to actually get the yeah. um, briefcase itself. Um, so then we've got the body situation where they go to clean up the car. We've got both the epilogues and the diner. Um, we've got Vincent Vega and Marcellus's wife when they actually go on the date. We've got the gold watch again. This happens at the present time. The gold watch, the film ends. And the line where he says, it's Zed's. Uh, Zed's dead, baby Zed's dead. That would be where the film would actually end, where he rides off into the yeah. sunset. So that makes a certain amount of sense. Yeah. Um, I would pay to buy this um, on DVD or Blu-ray and have it completely recut in that order. I wouldn't have a problem paying for that. I wonder if somebody's done that. Well, as I say, I found a clip on YouTube that put it all together in the actual order. And it still worked well. Um, I didn't have a problem with that, to be honest with you. I still thought it was good. Um, you know, and I think that's what makes it good. I think that's what makes it work because it works <laughs> both ways. I think that, I think that's probably again testament to Tarantino. Yeah, that he can do it in such a way that it will make sense if watched in order. Yeah, and it'll make sense if watched out of order. Because I think if you went to most directors and writers and said, "Okay, we're taking your script, but we split it up in these different areas," they'd be, "Well, no, you're ruining the story. You, you're yeah. ruining what we know as the story." Yeah. And 
I wonder, do you think Tarantino wrote this in a specific narrative order and then moved it about? Or did he, did he write, write it, it yeah. purposely? How, you know, what do you think? I, I imagine he's he's done the jumping around himself when he's been writing it. Yeah. Because I've seen that he uses a narrative framework in, in other stories. I mean, I can almost imagine that he's got, like, a, po- a board with a load of post-it notes or something. Yeah, start here, end here. Yeah. This Unless is what happens in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, this is the film in which I think he's used that narrative, that narrative framework best. Yes. Because um, I can't really think of any other film where he's, where he's, where he's done that. Um, a little bit in The Hateful Eight. A little bit, but not much. Not, not, as, not nearly it, as that's much. That's more of a, that's more in the kind of way we use it in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Um, and I can't four think Four Rooms, maybe, but that, that wasn't entirely his. Um... Um, I can't think of any other films that really did it and did it, you know, that that did it. Jan- I mean, Django a little bit. I've never seen Django. I've still got it on DVD to watch, but I mean, for me, it's, the, it's a wonderful film. The the only Christmas film that's amazing. I think there are there are an awful lot of films that I would compare to this. As I said, as I've already said, the works of Gus Van Sant, the works of Lars von Trier, the 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 works of. Um, of Gus Van Sant, you know, of um, Wes Craven. Um, the the I know I know I go on about this an awful lot, but the um, but the film Victoria from a few years ago, where the whole film was shot in one take. Yeah, there were no cuts at all, and good God, that's amazing. Lily Harrison did that did that recently, where it was a live streamed movie. Oh right, okay. Done in one continuous take. Yeah, but he he spent months rehearsing it, blocking it, everything. Yeah. And so if one thing had gone wrong, it would ruin it completely. Yeah. I mean, if you asked him, he probably said he would never do it again. Oh yeah, you see, he did because um, he directed, and it was it was based on one night in his life in London. Right. Really, um, I'm interested to see that. Yeah. I'll check that out for certain. Um, but uh, I've just thought of a film in which Tarantino does use that narrative framework. Okay. Inglorious Bastards. I've never seen it all the way through. I but, watched it once Sunday morning. But that's the only one I can think of that's yeah. similar to, to fiction. Mm-hmm. And I use that, that same kind of jumping all over the place framework. Right. I mean, it still works. That's good. Um, and for me, Inglourious Bastards was one of my favourite films. So, ever. which was better then, in your opinion, dogs or fiction? I wouldn't say either. I, I, if I, if push comes to shove, I would say Reservoir Dogs is the best film. Because it by feels, a, by a it hair's feel, breath, it feels more realistic to me. It feels more gritty. By it, a hair's breath, it, it feels more grounded in reality. And I mean, there's no right or wrong answer. There isn't. There's not. It's it's not. What is two plus two? It's. Because it's it's basically down to personal preference. It is. So there would never be a wrong answer. No. Um, it's like asking what you know what flavour pie do you prefer? There's no wrong answer to it because it's your preference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think what makes this film so wonderful, uh, is that I feel that no matter how many times you see it, you never get bored. It it's 
it's almost a film of a rite of passage in a way. Yeah. It was one of those films that if you saw it at a young age, and admittedly I didn't, because as I've said on other podcasts, you know, I lived in the middle of nowhere effectively where I lived. We didn't have access to many to much. Um you just couldn't buy films where I'm from. It was very difficult to say. But I do think it's one of those films that is part of a generation. I th- I it's think, important. I think, I think the, the, these films are like Woodstock to us. If you, you know, you have to be there. I, mean, I, yeah. I saw this, not when it first came out on the cinema, but when it first came out on VHS. <laughs> um, talking what, 94, 95? Yeah. Um, even watching it last night, I watched this. Still felt fresh. Yes, I agree. It's timeless in that regard. Uh, and you know, so many movies you can watch it. I mean, we're talking twenty three years old now. This movie is so many movies you can watch it, and five years after it's made, it feels outdated. Episode one being the prime example. Star Wars yeah, episode one. Yeah, yeah, uh, that felt outdated five minutes after it came. Agreed. Out. Agreed. <laughs> anyway, but this film, it's it doesn't feel dated. Ah, shit! My laptop's about to die. I think mostly that's because Time Zero doesn't really it's not set in any particular time yes it's it, it always be, just present day it, you'd be hard to push when this was necessarily set same with, same with Reservoir Dogs it's, it's, um, I think it's just set in present day yeah whenever the present day is indeed indeed and that's that's part of the Time Zero genius is that unless it's films like Inglorious Bastards or the Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His films aren't really set in any particular time. Not really. So, what was the thing that bothered you about the ending then? Because I'm fairly certain we're right, we're both on the same thing here. It's the line of dialogue. Yeah. I love you, Pumpkin, I love you, Honey Bunny. And then he stands up. Everybody be cool, there's a robbery. And her dialogue changes. Yes, it does. And you can also see that the camera completely changes yeah now I think it was just purely a mistake I can only assume it was that would probably be on the IMDB trivia it's not you know it's not even mentioned um, I mean I'm gonna I've, I've already I recorded it at, at is it day. not on the continuity Harris? it's not no um, it's not mentioned I know we found something we could have time yay um, I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna intercut it into here in your face IMDB um, you know because it is it is when I think the problem is that when I I don't think I noticed it, but when I noticed it last night, it was like hang on a second. No, it's something I'd always noticed, but it was always just at the back of my mind. Yeah, and it hadn't really been that important. But and then the watching you it last night, things. watching it last night, it was like shit. Yeah, Tarantino fucked up. <laughs> And it's not. It's not. It's just like a. It's not like just a small thing. Like, oh, she, she she's wearing a different coat in that scene. It was an entirely different line. It was an entirely different line of dialogue. Yeah. In a very pivotal scene. Indeed, indeed. I mean, still wonderfully done, but you know. I mean, doing on Amanda Plummer still brilliant in either version of the scene. Yeah. But I just wonder how so many people left that past without. Without it being picked up on, <laughs> and I, I kind of feel victorious now that we've both noticed that. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's not just me. No, indeed. Um, well, we've been going for an hour, so 
I think we'll just briefly cover the cast, although we've kind of already done that a bit, to be honest with you. But we'll try and find, you know, okay, so, uh, Tim Roth was Pumpkin, we've already said that he is fantastic in that role. Um, couldn't imagine anyone else replacing him. Same, I would say, with John Travolta and with Samuel L. Jackson. I couldn't imagine anybody else replacing them. Um, Bruce Willis... Anyone I'm, could have played I, that I, role. Yeah, I'm not convinced that he... Excuse me. I'm not convinced that he's necessarily pivotal. And um, No, I mean, he's a fairly replaceable actor in a fairly replaceable role, in mm. fairness. Any actor of around his age could have played Mel Gibson. <laughs> no, I no Mel Gibson. Are you shitting me? Could have played Butch. Oh, I don't know about that. Okay, um, I can't think of anyone else. <laughs> so maybe we've just ruined our own argument. Yeah, possibly. Bruce Willis, you're the man. Well done, Bruce. Well done. Uh, okay, so who else do we have? Um, Ving Rhames. I was, um, who didn't do much. Didn't need to. But he didn't need to, no. He was very good nonetheless. Yeah, he, I mean, this is his first real breakout role. That, yeah. Like, first film I noticed him in. Um, and it's just like, he is a scary motherfucker. Yes, he is. Yeah. Um, and... He's got very good presence, despite. I mean, I just, I just love the scene where um, Butch runs him over, and you just see him walking down across the street, and he just stops, turns around, and he's like, "Motherfucker!" Um, and with his donuts in hand. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we've already, we've also got uh, the aforementioned Eric Stoltz as Lance, who is just a wonderful character. He's so yeah, funny. He's- I, I, I want a Lance in my life, not not as a drug dealer, just as someone to hang out with. Him. Yeah, I mean, I, I just love the balance between um, Lance and his girlfriend, whose name I can't remember, when the phone's ringing at like 3 30. Judy. <laughs> That's it. Um, Jody. I think it might be Jody, yeah. Where um, it's like 3 30 in the morning, and she just screams, I thought you told those guys not to ring here anymore. He says, I did tell those assholes not to ring here anymore. And that's and I'm gonna pick up and I'm gonna say stop doing it. And it's just it's just wonderful because it's so calmly done. Uh, but then he so quickly changes when he realizes the depth of the situation. You call me on the cell phone? Prank call, prank call! It is wonderful. And you know I we keep saying it, but I couldn't imagine anyone else but Stoltz playing the role, especially not as the aforementioned Kirk Cobain. No, definitely not. I mean, I think the only thing you could say about Kurt Cobain was that he came across as a bit of a stoner. Um, and that's really... That's because he was massively high on heroin. Well, so maybe he would have been good for the role. Um, although I don't think drug dealers are It would have brought a bit much. too much realism yeah, to the role, I think. Just a little bit. Um, we've also got the obviously wonderful Uma Thurman as Miss Amir Wallace. Miss Amir Wallace... What do you think of her? What do you think of Uma Thurman as an actor in general? I think she's a fine actress. I've I've always enjoyed the work. Um, I mean, let's just have a quick look at what she's done because it's you know she's not a name that I really think of. You know, she was good in Kill Bill and Kill Bill Two. I know a lot of people didn't like um, didn't like the film, but I actually thought it was very good. Um, I've got to say. Um, that also had a damn good cast in it. We should probably watch that at some point, actually. Oh, gosh, he was in Paycheck. Are we talking about Kill Bill? Yeah, yeah. 
Paycheck was between the two movies. Wasn't that Ben Affleck? Yes, it was. Good God, that was terrible. But not nearly as bad as Batman and Robin. Yay! Um, what else has she done? Obviously, uh, the film that killed Batman. Oh God, she was in Robin Hood. She was me, Marion. Yeah. Is as in Robin Hood with, with... Alan Rickman? Yes. No. That's him, Fairman. That's, I would that's never. Alan, that's I would Alan never Rickman. have guessed that. In, no, hang on. That was Prince of Thieves. Ah, okay, yes, this yeah. Is a, this is a very different. Patrick Bergen. Right, that's why. Oh yeah, Jürgen Prochnowski. Who else was in this? Just out of interest. Jürgen Prochnowski. Ben um, Fox. David Morrissey. Doctor Who himself. What? David Morrissey. Yeah. Oh, sorry, not Ben Heaven Badly. David Morrissey. No, that's Neil Morrissey. That's Neil Morrissey, isn't it? Yes. Oh God, I'm good with names, aren't I? <laughs> I don't recognise anyone in this film to be perfectly honest with you apart from Moon Firm. Oh well, never mind. That's a shame. Yeah, um, even Proc, I will probably know. I think I know the name, but I don't really know why. Um, what else has she done? Ooh, Dangerous Liaisons. Fair play. <laughs> um, I've heard The Adventures of Baron Munchausen is good, but I've never got around to watching it. It's not a film that I've ever felt I really need to watch. It's one of the biggest turkeys in Hollywood history. Really? Is it that bad? What's it, it about? It massively flopped. Massively, massively flopped. What was it about? Flopped, here, what was it about? Um, the account of Barry Munchausen's supposed to travel and festival. Mind you, you got 7.2 on IMDb, so it can't have been that bad. It's the, oh, it's, oh, it's it's a Terry Killian film. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll give it a go. I mean, it's not a bad film. I'm just saying if if flopped. Yeah, yeah. Um... um Terry Gilliam films tend to be they don't ma- do massively well at the box office 12 Monkeys the exception mm. that yes. was just an exceptional movie that was to be fair um, we've got the aforementioned Steve Buscemi playing the Buddy Holly role um, you know um, to be fair for the dialogue that he had it was well done you know yeah. fair play to him for doing it um, Christopher Walken as the terrifying Captain Coons. Yeah. Uh, who else do we have here that really sticks out? Maria de Medeiros, that's her name. Um, as Fabienne, the girlfriend, Butch's girlfriend. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah, she was actually very good in it, but I wouldn't have a clue who she was. Well, there she is, Maria de yeah. Medeiros. Um, she, she was quite adorable. She was in a way. In this, she in was very role. innocent as well. She was, she was, You've got to wonder why they got together to begin with. Yeah, that was a very strange pairing, but... Um, you know. Um, obviously Quentin Tarantino, because this is a Quentin Tarantino film, so he has to be in this at some point. Although, again, you know, he was perfectly competent. But to be fair, and I think we said this on the, I think we said this on the Red of War Dogs episode... If he's writing this kick-ass dialogue, of course he of wants course to he's himself, give himself in some, some way. Yeah, you know, it's it's like making it's like truly making the best meal in the world and then not having a taste. Yeah, that's not gonna happen. I mean, in um, he doesn't appear on screen in the Hateful Eight, um, but he's the narrator. And to be fair, he's quite good as the narrator in the Hateful Eight. Yeah, um, he's actually quite entertaining. He keeps it together. Um, the wonderful aforementioned Heidi Keitel as the wolf, who is just... He's the man. He is. 
Yeah, if that's I mean he's the that has now gone on. And, I mean it's it's not his fault, but has gone on to make some really dodgy carriage adverts. Yeah, I have to wonder if if Tarantino signed off on that. Um, I would assume so because it's yeah, effectively right. replication of the character. But a, but could copyright be off? It's over twenty years later. Possibly, I don't know. I mean, all I know is that they would have they would have obviously checked on that, um, and that really is it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's Lawrence good. Bender is the long hair yuppie scum. Although I wouldn't have a clue what Lawrence Bender looks like if his picture wasn't on IMDb. If you'd said to me who's Lawrence Bender, I would know him because he works alongside Tarantino. He was also he that, was also in Dogs. He was the cop. He was the cop chasing them all in the streets. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um... But yeah, so do we have an awful lot more to say? No, I mean, obviously this is a film that, for me, still stands up. Mm. I, I couldn't, apart from the one line of dialogue, which we thankfully both yeah. picked up on, I cannot fault this movie. I can't. Um, and it's very rare for me to say that. Yeah. Because I... Because I'm the kind of pedantic household that will find fault with a film just for the sake of it. Yeah. It's as close to perfection, absolute perfection, as you can get. Um, again, you can't find any fault with the cast, the writing, the dialogue, the scenes, the setting. Everything off this movie works. Agreed. It, sh- it shouldn't. Cause it, yeah. It, because yeah. it, it jumps from place to place and you go, <laughs> and if you think, if you really think about it too much, that's when it gets confusing. But, for a movie that's 23 years old, there are very few films that I can get really excited about getting my DVD version of it out. I've got the two disc collector's edition of it. Same, same. I was excited. <laughs> I was like a kid on Christmas Day. Yeah. Taking this out. But it's it's been it's genuinely been a while since I've watched it. I think and it's, it yeah. really surprised me just how quick, how snappy it was. And there were things, because it had been a while, there were things that were happening and I thought, didn't that happen much later? And it's it, it really surprised me at the pacing of it. Mm-hmm. But, it, I mean, this is a film that's, what, two and a half hours long? Around about there? Two Around inch. that sort of way. It, it's certainly not a 90 minute film, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't feel like it at no, any point. Although, I seem to remember it did the first time I watched it, but f- now it doesn't. The first time you watch it, because the first time you watch it, you go, you know, probably like me, you were going, what the hell has happened? Yeah. And, the, and it is so dialogue heavy. Yeah. Um, but that dialogue, it just it still fizzes. Yes. So, for me, that'll be a solid 9 out of 10. Oh, easily, definitely. I, you know, I I think it's a perfect film. I really think it is. I can't think of any other films that I would really say that about, but I think this wins. Um, yeah. It, you know. It, it, it stands up, and it still looks like a modern movie. Yeah. Despite the fact that it's not set in any particular time. The dated references are from the nineteen fifties, mm-hmm. and then Jack Rabbit Sims. Yeah, and you know 
you can't really place it in any particular era or decade. No. But it still feels like it was made yesterday. Which, how many films can you say that about? Very um, few. Yeah, I mean, there, I, I've seen a lot of films that are dated, but not necessarily to their detriment. Um, you know, Casablanca is a dated film, but it's still a classic. Gone with the Wind is a dated film, but it's still a classic. And God knows they should never be remade, ever. It's no, God knows. That's like rewriting the Bible. Yeah. Um, so, do we have anything more to say about Pulp Fiction? I don't think so. Um, all I would say is, folks, if you haven't seen it, please, please, please go out and watch it. Yeah. It, this film will change your life. <laughs> it won't, but it will. <laughs> you know, don't be expecting to go for cancer, folks, because that's not going to happen. But if you, if you want a film that makes you think, that makes you question what's happening, that actually challenges you, this is the film. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed. Um, you know, we really do appreciate anybody who listens to the podcast. Um, if you have enjoyed what you've heard, please consider subscribing on iTunes and indeed following us on SoundCloud. We are on both formats. Um, please also consider listening to the Iconographic Podcast with me and Derek, where we review more up-to-date films. Um, next, I'm not well. We will be finishing off the Askew universe. I have in mind a film that I want to review away from the um, from the Kevin Smith um, series Well, of films. It's, it's your choice now. It is my choice. Um, I think mine is going to be Shattered Glass because I think it's brilliant. Have you ever seen? Have you ever heard no. about it? Um, it's basically about this guy oh, called. Tell me about it once more. Yes, well, I'll tell you about it in the pub. But thank you very much for listening. Thanks, and thank you once again for joining me, Mike. Thank you for having me, Chris. Bye bye. You have been listening to Sunday Afternoon Cinema, which is a recorded podcast. The podcast was hosted by myself and Mike Larkin. The podcast was recorded, produced and edited by myself, Mr. Melinda. If you've liked what you've heard, please consider subscribing on iTunes or following on SoundCloud. Thank you for listening.